0: party crash. Still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Unless you want to open the front door for me.
1: I'm afraid not. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture.
0: always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? yippee ki motherfucker. <laughs> oh, the weather outside is frightful.
1: Dum-da-dum, delightful. Lincoln 30 to dispatch no 30, go ahead. Yeah, that's a wild goose chase over here at Nakatomi Plaza snow, Everything is okay Over But nobody
0: has no to go by. Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Man, God damn Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow let I mean, man, Oh, I hate going up Everybody, if we hear some tunes?
1: Hey, that'll work. Mm-hmm. You got any Christmas music?
0: This is Christmas music. Mm-hmm. It was December 24th when Hollis the dark When I seen a man chilling with his dog at the park I approached him very slowly with my heart full of fear
1: Welcome to a very My Movies Better Christmas episode, bonus episode, featuring John McTiernan's film Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Bonnie Bedelia, and Reginald Vell Johnson. I'm Kevin from My Movies Better, and I hope you enjoy this little Christmas special that I put together for you on Christmas Eve. And beware, there are going to be die-hard spoilers ahead. Though I guess that should be sort of obvious. Um, so if you haven't seen Die Hard, go see it before you listen to this, silly. But before we get started tonight, I'm going to give you a little preview of our upcoming episode, the My Movies Better Political Rumble, featuring the films Milk, Doctor Strange, Love. And network. All men are created equal,
0: and endowed with certain inalienable rights. So, for
1: Mr. Briggs and Mrs. Bryant, and all the bigots out there. No matter how hard you
0: try, you can never erase those words from the Declaration of Independence. Independence.
1: Welcome to the first ever My Movies Better Political Rumble. Your candidates are the film's milk. This came in the mail today. You get the first bullet the minute
0: you stand at the microphone.
1: Doctor Strange Love or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb.
0: Our hopes for recalling 843rd bombing are quickly being reduced to a very low order of probability.
1: And the group pick Network.
0: Every goddamn executive fired from a
1: network in the last 20 years
0: has written this dumb book. And nobody wants a dumb damn goddamn television. <laughs>
1: So around this time of year, you start seeing a lot of videos like this. Die Hard. Is it a Christmas movie? Blah, 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 blah. Well, <clears throat> that's a bunch of bullshit. Mainly because those people are just trying to get views and listens. And that's why I made my own Die Hard Video Diary Journal podcast episode for this Christmas. But this is not going to be a regular episode. We're not talking about whether or not... Die Hard is or isn't a Christmas movie. Fuck that. No. We're doing something different here on this podcast. Because this podcast, we think outside the box. You know? And outside the bun. We live moss, okay? So. There's plenty of better movies that are also borderline Christmas movies. Like Gremlins. Or like a film we covered in our episode, The Receipt for Your Husband. uh, Dystopia. The movie Brazil, directed by Terry Gilliam, which is also a movie which takes place in and around Christmas. Um, I always thought Child's Play was a Christmas movie, but it's not. I just figured it was, but it was his birthday, so it's a birthday movie. And there's also uh, many others of, of repute, which you could also classify in this thing. But the real reason that I want to talk... About Die Hard is because I want to talk about Reginald Vell Johnson, alright? Reginald Vell Johnson is an American actor. He's known for being a, the only good cop in the world and playing policeman characters such as Carl Winslow on the sitcom Family Matters, which ran from 1989 to 1998. Yeah, top that, you can't, you're not better than him. And the LAPD Sergeant Al Powell in the films Die Hard and Die Hard 2, which we're talking about right frickin' now. That's right. Resonable Johnson, man. He went to NYU. He's got an MFA, all right? He's a Bachelor of Arts, a Master of Acting, all right? Ghostbusters, 1984. He played a corrections officer, you know? Did you see him in that? Because he was in it. He was also in Crocodile Dundee in 1986, the year I was born, as Gus. He was also Detective David Dave Sutton in Turner and Hooch, 1989. And then, like, a little bit after Die Hard 2, and after the end of Family Matters, the roles really started to dry up for uh, old Reggie. And uh, he was in Air Collision as Bob Abbott in 2012, but that's about it. So I wanted to say Merry Christmas to one of my favorite actors, Reginald Vell Johnson. He shot a kid. He worked at a desk job after that because he was one good cop. And that's all I got to say about old Reggie. The other thing is, all right, I really like Die Hard. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, When I was a kid, I watched a lot of dumb action movies with my dad because my dad liked dumb action movies. And uh, this one stuck out as probably my favorite. And it definitely influenced pretty much all action movies after it with its brilliant and gigantic and explosive set pieces. Um And I guess I'd like to talk a little bit in this episode about the Star Wars Holiday Special. That's right. The Incredible Hulk will not be presented this evening. The Star Wars Holiday Special. If you haven't seen it, well, you're not missing much. But I'm going to talk about it right after a message from your friends. I'm turning back. I know your family's waiting. I know it's an important day. All right, we'll give it a try. I'll set your coordinates. won't jump far. I'll get you back there in time, pal. Trust me. Our only hope now is I'll run that Imperial garbage Scout. though. I'm going to lightspeed. That's the spirit. You'll be celebrating life day before you know it. Stand by. Here's me to say goodbye to our unpleasant friends.
0: The Star Wars Holiday Special. Starring Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia. With Anthony Daniels as C-3PO. Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca. R2-D2 as R2-D2. And James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader. Using Chewbacca's family, his wife Mala, his father Itchy, his son Lumpy, with special guest stars Beatrice Arthur, Art Carney. Carol, the Jefferson Starship, Harvey Corman, and an animated Star Wars story on the Star Wars Holiday Special.
1: Okay, so what can you say about this turd of a thing, of a piece of media, of a cash-in... Excuse me? Are Disney's lawyers calling me? Hello? The Star Wars oh, okay. Holiday
0: Special. Sponsored by... Alright. General Motors.
1: Alright, look. People um, I guess we will just let it finish. Anyway. Uh, so, what can you say about this turd? Okay. What can you say about this turd? Nothing. But I'm gonna say stuff about this awful piece of media the year was the 1970s george lucas was riding high off the success of the first star wars movie which everyone involved thought was going to be really really shitty and not make them any money well fuck they were wrong because star wars blew up like it was pokemon or fortnite or pogs and everybody wanted shit They wanted Star Wars bedspreads, they wanted Star Wars action figures, they wanted Star Wars holiday goddamn specials, and George Lucas was ready to provide, sort of, because nothing about this holiday special is well done from a scripting, shooting, acting, none of it. Everything about this is terrible, so why, why is this so incredibly awful? Well, let me start you with a bit of a background. Uh, Chewbacca and Han Solo attempt to visit the Wookiee homeworld of Keshek to celebrate Life Day, which is basically Wookiee Christmas, as they are being pursued by agents of the Galactic Empire searching for members of the Rebel Alliance. Yada, yada, you get it. Star Wars. In this special, we meet, as you heard before, the three members of Chewbacca's small family. His father, Itchy, who's disgusting, his wife, Mala who's somewhat less disgusting, and his son, Lumpy, who is quite possibly the most beautiful little disgusting man-child I have ever seen. Uh, we also get uh, appearances by Mark Hamill, fresh off of a motorcycle accident, which he was lucky to survive, uh, heavily makeup and not wanting to be there, uh, Princess Leia, heavily drugged and sort of wanting to be there, and Harrison Ford, who really doesn't want to be anywhere, Anytime ever, uh, as well as Anthony Daniels as C3PO, and as they weirdly say in the opening credits, R2D2 is R2D2. So basically, fuck you, Kenny Baker, is what they're saying because Kenny Baker, who is a little person, uh, aptly maneuvered R2D2 and had to spend long, long, hot days inside a tin can, basically. So big props to English badass kenny baker english so the program also includes uh footage from the film for some reason uh i guess it makes more sense in 1978 since we don't all have dvds in the internet and shit uh, and also a pretty good cartoon which was made by the toronto-based nelvana group featuring boba fett um so yeah, that's basically what happens in it because literally nothing happens in this. There's like all these scenes with weird stuff and like a couple with Harvey Corman really hamming it up for the camera. But there's really nothing else that happens in it um, other than the appearances from our stars. And let me tell you, things did not go good while they were making this. Oh, and did I mention it's also a musical? Yeah, um, Ken and Mitzi Welsh and Ian Fraser were brought in to adapt the John Williams orchestral themes, and so there were four songs. This minute now, which was sung by Diane Carroll, uh, in a some sort of virtual reality machine that Itchy is into, and uh, it's like his fantasy, and it's basically like porn. It's porn. He's watching porn. Grandpa's watching porn. Uh, number two song is Light the Sky on Fire, which is performed by the band Jefferson Starship, which used to be the band Jefferson Airplane before Cocaine. Um, and that was like a 3D music video. It's really bad. Uh, the song's not too, too bad, but I mean, Jefferson Starship was not very good. And I don't even think Jefferson Airplane was that good, personally. But anyway, we also have B. Arthur singing, which... Actually, is probably the best song in it. Uh, she sings a song called "Good Night," but not "Goodbye," but it's uh, set to the Cantina band theme. It's a little weird, but uh, hey, it's B. Arthur, you know? Great. Awesome. And uh, at the end, Carrie Fisher sings a song in celebration of Life Day. So yeah, it's a musical. It's also a comedy. Because you got Harvey Corman's sketches, which make no sense. And I'm not even really going to get into them. Except for the one where he's Julia Child. He's like a four-armed Julia Child. Um, and it's really weird. Uh, yeah. That's all I have to say about Harvey Corman, Because he was an amazing actor. And he's one of my favorites. Uh, I actually suggest uh, watching the film High Anxiety. Uh, Mel Brooks' film, which was a lampoon on the uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, filmography. And it's really good. And there's one really particularly funny uh, physical comedy scene with Harvey and Mel. And uh, Harvey is trying to co- convince Mel that he's seeing all these different things like vampires and werewolves and stuff. It's funny. I'm not going to describe the whole scene. Um, but yeah. So, Star Wars animated, I mean not animated, regular, live action, with one animated segment, holiday, motherfucking special. Why? I said all this crap about it, but why was, what happened? What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. So while he was outlining uh, the original Star Wars and the planning of its potential sequels, George Lucas imagined a film that was just about Wookiees and nothing else. So after this original film's success, A New Hope, uh, the cast made a few appearances on TV variety shows. According to Charles Lippincott, who is head of marketing of the Star Wars Corporation, CBS bought, uh, brought the idea of doing a TV special to him and Lucas, although there is some internal dispute about this claim. So, of course, you know, the company, the corporation, wanted to do this. Um, and so they hired variety show people, Bruce Valanche, I don't know if you know Bruce Valanche, but if you do, you know Bruce Valanche, uh, he was, uh, concerned, he was one of the people brought in, he was concerned about the decision to center the special on a species, uh, who grunts in a fictional language, and he was right, because that's 99% of the dialogue in the, I guess it's a movie, the special, is, uh, Wookiees, and, uh, it's not translated. There's no subtitles. It's just like physical communication for like an hour. And uh, it's it's really hard to watch. It's really hard to follow or even care to follow. Um, but they said, you know, Bruce Valance, we don't give a fuck what you have to say. We're doing it anyway. Because George would not budge on his vision. Does that not sound familiar? So the special had... Two director or went through two directors. Uh, first was David Akamba, and he was brought in through an attempt to make us different in uh, from the variety shows. Um, he's also a classmate of Lucas at UFC Film School, but he was unfamiliar with the multi-camera setup and felt that there was a divide between himself and the producers. So he left the project after only finishing a few scenes, including the Cantina and the Jefferson Starship. And he was replaced by Steve Blinder. And actually, the legendary Stan Winston was hired to design the Wookiee family's costumes. So shame on you, Stan. Those were bad. Actually, he's dead. Rest in peace, Stan. But, uh... Those are not good costumes from a guy who... Was known for doing amazing costuming work, uh, including on Jurassic Park, Aliens, Predator, Spectre Gadget, yeah, Meh. Uh, Matthew Broderick, car accident. Uh, so the special was broadcast in its entirety in the United States only once, on Friday, November 17th, the week before Thanksgiving, on the television network CBS, and it preempted Wonder Woman and the Incredible Hulk. And afterwards, George Lucas said they should burn the tape and no one should ever see it again. But guess what, Georgie, boy, we got it. It's on the internet. You can look it up. You can watch it. I don't suggest watching more than a few seconds. So instead, you should go find a Best Moments video because that will be way funnier. Um, It's very boring. It's very crazy. Um. And like I said, you had stars who were uncooperative because obviously they were like, this is some bullshit and we don't want to be involved in it. We're professional actors, but they were also sort of under contract. Um, I don't know if I mentioned before, this was in between the first two films. So this takes place in between, uh, or it takes place before the events of Empire Strikes Back, which is, in my opinion, the only really good Star Wars movie. Um, I like a lot of them. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Star Wars, as I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but uh, I don't think they're like the greatest movies. They're just movies I liked when I was a kid. But I really still enjoy Empire Strikes Back. I think it's a really well-put-together film, and it's brilliantly directed by Irvin Kirshner, who also doesn't get enough credit um, for his work. So, anyway, that was a little tirade on the star wars christmas special i hope you enjoyed it and now we can get back to more pressing matters i guess i don't know how about we uh take a little travel step back in time talk to past kevin uh here's a little bit more on the character john McClane in the movie die hard and yeah enjoy In John McTiernan's 1988 film Die Hard, we are presented with a moral question outside of the normal quandaries of good versus evil. While the film still explores these ideas fully and richly in the battle between John McClane, Bruce Willis, the hero of the people, and Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman, the terrorist thief, there is a subtext underlying their physical struggle about the dangers of unfettered capitalism and the existential suffering that accompanies those who give their lives over to it. John could be a hero of socialism, and I intend to explain why over the course of this episode. I'm Kevin from My Movies Better, and this is another short bonus episode on the movie Die Hard, just in time for Christmas. Okay, you say, that's crazy, Kevin. How could a cop be a socialist hero of the people? Well, it's simple. John's character represents the most simplistic desires for survival which dwell in all of us, but he rejects the need for money or commercialism to achieve his goals. Right off the bat, he is shown to be uncomfortable with the modern world and how it works. The very first scene consists of John showing anxiety on an airplane to the point that a total stranger notices this anxiety and offers him a remedy. It is more than just John's obvious fear of flying or his anxiety about his wife and her new job. It's an abject rejection of modern capitalist society. Alright, alright, maybe that's a stretch, but it goes on. I'd also like to point out that this scene reminds me almost of Johnny Depp, aka William Blake, in the film Dead Man, being brought down into hell by Sharon, aka the train fireman Crispin Glover. Uh, there's almost like this quality of he's being led to LA by this single character who has like one or two lines in the film. Anyway, check out the last episode of My Movies Better for some more info on Dead Man. In the next scene, John is picked up by a limo driver named Argyle, Devereaux White, to be brought to Nakatomi Plaza in the party. However, John so identifies with his own notions of class that he rides in the front seat with the people. This is a small and subtle hint, but it means a lot. It not only shows his regular guyness and differentiates him from his wife, Holly, Bonnie Bedelia's co-workers we are about to see at the party, but it also shows us that John does not see himself as above these people. This continues as he asks Argyle whether or not Run DMC is Christmas music but does not impose on him or ask him to turn the music off. Fully establishes John in a way the director wants you to see him, as the ubermensch, or character we all aspire to be. Once John arrives at Nakatomi, the themes of capitalism clashing with John's own personality become even more frequent. But one thing that seems to carry on throughout the film is, one, John's immediate rejection of those of the elite or money class, and two, John's immediate trust and connection with those of the middle or working class. This is seen in the scene where he speaks with the building security guard, even sharing a brief back and forth about how computers are making the world more complicated. And of course, also in John's relationship with the regular Joe Cop, Sergeant Al Powell, Reginald Vell Johnson. The contrast to John then comes with Hans's arrival. Everything about Hans is the opposite of John, from his John Phillips London suits to the benefits of his classical education. But most importantly, the contrast between John and Hans, also note that Hans is the German version of John, is at a molecular level. Hans is not a terrorist, nor does he believe in a cause outside of the cause of capital. He is, as Holly says, a common thief who dreams of lazing on a beach with his millions after murdering about 40 innocent people. To Hans, the ends justify the means, whereas with John, there is a clear moral line he will not cross. John shows compassion for all people throughout the film, even the capitalists like Mr. Takagi, and to a lesser extent, Ellis. Because he can still identify with them as hard-working people who have been lured in and trapped by the allure of money. John also sees his wife in this way, who is conflicted between her own feelings and the compassion and love he has for her. Ellis is an interesting character for viewing John in this lens. After about 30 seconds of screen time, we get the idea of who he is and what his goals are. He is shown as greedy, motivated, and fully integrated into the corporate system, as well as having romantic designs on Holly. He's also shown to be a cocaine user, which makes me feel like it's a nod to the dangers of being swept up in the corporate rat race system. Ellis is a sweating, sniveling man on the edge. In his opening scene, after we see him doing cocaine, of course, he tells Holly to show John a gift he has purchased for her, an expensive Rolex watch. This is important not only because of the obvious status symbol that such an expensive piece represents, but also because Ellis goes out of his way to name drop the brand Rolex, which is even more of a status symbol. It shows that Ellis equates money to power, and it is not even on- the only brand that Ellis is associated with in the film. Before he's killed later in the film, he requests a Coca-Cola, and he literally dies clutching the can. Or so you would assume, you don't actually see that in the film. But it's still important to me, as Ellis represents a sort of mini-boss character in films that the main character must deal with or overcome before dealing with the main villain. Uh, The terrorist, Carl, also fits this role. Alright, so that's all I had for my analysis on Die Hard, but I did have some other analysis from uh, someone on the good old internet, from Reddit, Grubarb Jelly. First, I love Die Hard, and generally believe it to be a masterpiece of its genre. I think you can absolutely argue that Die Hard has an anti-capitalist subtext, but personally, it would be a stretch for me to call it a socialist one. I agree, this was more of a joke, because everybody always argues whether or not uh, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Anyway, back to rhubarb jelly here. There's little socialist about Maclean. His liking for the working man, his affinity with fellow cops and taxi drivers, has more to do with I think of, uh, uh, of what I think of as traditional American values. There's nothing more traditionally American than capitalism. I think what the double enemy, uh, uh, the double enemy of corporation and terrorists may represent is a particular form of capitalism characterized by multinational corporations and globalization. The common ground being greed. So I might argue that rather than anti-capitalist, the subtext of Die Hard is more actual, accurately anti-globalization and anti-multinational corporation. It's pro-honest capitalism, as personified by the honest working man, the cop, and the taxi driver. It's interesting that the bad guys are are uh, racially other, is how he put it, but I think it means are you know European and Japanese white men and black men, uh, American. This idea of the melting pot, I think, is what he's getting at, Um, although significantly there are no black men in high-status positions. There's a good argument to be made that such narratives that present bad capitalism in opposition to good capitalism are participating in a particularly American form of self-delusion on the merits of capitalism, one which you can detect in very many popular movies. When you start to break it down, the idea that good capitalism can somehow contain and curtail greed and that free market forces will ultimately work for the common good and the simple, work, uh, simple working man is simply a fairy tale Americans like to tell themselves. Die Hard, despite my assertion that it is a cinematic masterpiece, is a perfect example of such a delusional tale. He's right, you know. Or she. Or they. A particular, uh, particularly unfashionable element of Die Hard's positive portrayal of traditional American values is in its implications that by choosing her corporate business role, Holly, McLean's ex-wife, has somehow taken a wrong turn, or has not chosen the authentic role. It's Christmas, and shouldn't she be at home with her husband and kids? The movie seems to think so, they got a really good point here. Of course, this is confirmed that at the end of the film, when McLean literally releases Holly from her corporate chains, the watch, thereby freeing her of excessive greed personified by Gruber, forever. As if aware of the potential anti feminist message, the narrative of Holly has something uh, the narrative has Holly do something outrageous and traditionally unfeminine in the final scene, almost as if to assure us that she's not now that uh, she's not now going to turn into the passive nineteen fifties housewife. She punches the TV reporter. Uh, as I recall, Die Hard also finds time to include a brilliant satire on modern news media, which joins corporate greed as the film's secondary target. Uh, yeah, I would totally agree with that. Um, it has the scene where the, guy, the news uh, anchor fucks up Helsinki, Sweden, <laughs> Finland. Um, and obviously the reporter character is, I think, a large satirization on how you know uh, pervasive news had and has continued to become in people's lives in America. Um, that rhubarb, that is an awesome analysis. That's why I specifically read it out. I also had another one uh, that uh, another commenter pointed out that I would like to mention. This film also has a bit of a American isolationist policy message, um, especially in terms of the fact that the company Holly is working for is a Japanese company. And the, 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 I couldn't find the post, but the person said that the, uh, and I actually never even noticed this. I've seen this movie hundreds of times. uh, The symbol for the Nakatomi Corporation, totally resembles not only a samurai's helmet, but also kind of a, a sitting samurai, um, kind of at the same time. It's a really interesting design. I, I You should go check it out. I'll throw it up in the video here-ish at some point, so you can see it um, if you haven't. But yeah, so that's just a little fun diehard Christmas analysis for you that has nothing to do with Christmas. Take your mind right off of it, even though there's a lot of sleigh bells in this episode. Yeah, I wanted to do this uh, sort of as a mixture of the two things we'll be doing in the next few episodes. First up, this is a little political. Our next episode of My Movies Better is the political rumble, so get ready for that. And uh, this is also a little preview of what's going to be coming up next week, uh, the week of Xmas um a little holiday episode featuring maybe a film we talked about tonight so keep your ears peeled um so yeah I uh, hope you enjoyed this and get prepared for more my movies better this has been a side episode I'm Kevin and we'll see you next time.